Luke 16, verses 14 to 18. And to remind ourselves where we are in the flow of Luke, you can go all the way back to chapter 15. And we have Jesus speaking, and much of this section of Luke is unique to Luke's gospel. And we have, in verse 1 of chapter 15, the tax collectors and sinners coming near to listen to Jesus. And so they're there listening to Christ, but it also mentions Pharisees and scribes beginning to grumble, saying this man receives sinners and eats with them. And Jesus gives several parables, including the one of the prodigal son, which we love so much. But we have this sort of mixed multitude here. We have the the people who were the sinners, the people you would think might not want to hear Christ, along with the Pharisees and scribes who supposedly love the law and love God and should be the first to listen to Christ, but not really doing so. Then we have, at the beginning of chapter 16, it says he's saying to the disciples, and then he gives this parable of the unrighteous steward. So we have this this back and forth. We have the Pharisees, we have the sinners, and now we have... Uh, in verse 14 of Luke 16, the Pharisees and Jesus responds to them. After he has said in verse 13, speaking of how you are to be faithful with your money, he says you cannot serve God and wealth or mammon. And now we get into our text for today. Verses 14 to 18. Now the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, were listening to all these things and were scoffing at him. And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves in the sight of men, but God knows your hearts, for that which is highly esteemed among men is detestable in the sight of God. The law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. Since that time, the gospel of the kingdom of God has been preached, and everyone is forcing his way into it. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one stroke of a letter of the law to fail." Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and he who marries one who is divorced from a husband commits adultery. Well, back to verse 14, we have the Pharisees scoffing. Now the Pharisees who were lovers of money were listening to all these things and were scoffing at him. And again, they are hanging around Jesus. The Pharisees are in the area listening to him. They're not to be taught, of course, but to scoff and find opportunities for accusing him. And this happens throughout his ministry, of course. Just a few examples from Luke. Uh, Luke 6, 7, early on in his ministry, the scribes and the Pharisees were watching Jesus closely to see if he healed on the Sabbath so that they might find reason to accuse him. And then Luke eleven fifty three, when Jesus left there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to be very hostile and to question him closely on many subjects. So in one case, they're looking for his his actions. He's going to heal on a Sabbath. Another time they're questioning him closely to find out what he what he thinks about things. Sometimes they're they're sitting and listening and then they're in this case they're scoffing at Jesus. And then just before the crucifixion, uh, Passion Week, Matthew twenty two fifteen, says the Pharisees went and plotted together how they might trap him and what he said. And so they're actively looking at this point to find a way to crucify Jesus. And these Pharisees, it says, are lovers of money. And we were reminded of some verses in Luke 11 earlier on. Verse 39 says, the Lord said to him, that is a Pharisee, you Pharisees clean the outside of the cup 
and the platter, but inside of you, you are full of robbery and wickedness. So in their hearts, they lusted for wealth. They loved money. And later in Luke, we'll see Jesus tell his disciples to beware of scribes who devour widows' houses. These men were so wicked that they would take advantage of the most uh, uh, fragile, the most vulnerable people in their society. They would devour their houses, devour their, their wealth. And notice here, Jesus doesn't say they're necessarily rich. Some commentators have said, well, there's no evidence that Pharisees in the Jesus day were rich. But do you have to be rich to love money? No, you don't. And so there's there's a difference. You can you can be poor as a church mouse and still love money. You can be very wealthy and not love money. It's your heart that's at issue. And they were lovers of money, even if they didn't have much at all. And these Pharisees, it says, were listening to all these things. That is the parable of the unrighteous steward earlier in chapter 16, the discussion of how to be faithful with money and his statement that you cannot serve God and wealth. And they were listening, but they were not really hearing, were they? They weren't truly listening to what Christ had to say. They were like those people Jesus mentions in Matthew 7, where he says, everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against that house and it fell and great was its fall. But these men were foolish. They were able to sit at Jesus' Jesus' feet but didn't act on what they heard from him. And instead of listening, truly listening, they were scoffing, it says here. And that's a picturesque word. It has the idea of turning up one's nose. They're looking down their noses at Jesus. This this poor rabbi from the sticks, from Nazareth of all places. And they've gone from grumbling, remember at the beginning of chapter 15, they're grumbling at Jesus, and now they're outright mocking him. They're scoffing at him. They even use this term in Luke 23 as Jesus is hanging on the cross. It says, even the rulers were sneering at him, saying, he saved others, let him save himself if this is the Christ of God, his chosen one. So they are uh, curling their lips, they're turning up their noses at what Jesus is saying and and who he is. And uh, as a follower of Christ, this is so shocking to me. These puffed-up, greedy hypocrites have this amazing opportunity to hear the words of the Son of God, and yet they scoff at him. And how many of you would give anything just to sit at Jesus' feet, you know, be able to be transported back and 2,000 years and be able to magically understand Aramaic or Greek or whatever and just listen to Jesus for a minute. And yet these men had years to hear Jesus and and they were following him around, listening. Probably nobody heard more of Jesus than a lot of these Pharisees besides the disciples themselves, the, the 12. The Pharisees were continuously following Jesus around like like pack animals, like like jackals looking to devour him. And yet, all that teaching was for nothing. It, in fact, it only hardened their hearts further. Now, why exactly were they scoffing? It may be that these words cut a little too deep. And since they couldn't contradict Jesus' message, they instead scoffed at the messenger. Their conscience may be pricked a little bit, and so they, they hold them at arm's length. And how many of you have done that? Somebody rebukes you and immediately you say, well you did this to me, or you did that, or you're a hypocrite, or you're, you're not worthy to speak to me, uh, is easy for us as parents to say when our little child wants to know why mommy and daddy can sin and they can't. And it's easy to say, well, 
I'm your parents. I, I, I'm allowed to do this. But um, in Jesus' case, he was totally pure, totally righteous, and everything he said was true and ought not to be scoffed at. But these men's uh, hearts were so hard that they would reject Jesus' words and scoff at him. They're, they're so proud, perhaps, that they're thinking, or and they're scoffing, they're saying, who are you to say such things? You're just a poor rabbi, again, from Nazareth. Who serves God better than we do? You, you say we cannot serve God in wealth, but we serve God. We wear the, the nice robes, we, we pray often, we give lots of money, we, uh, we know the, the scriptures so well. We're so pious. How can you dare to criticize us for trying to serve God and money? And if we happen to make a little money along the way, so be it. But these men here, once again, have an opportunity to repent and believe, but they persist in their rejection of Christ. Jesus is being forthright in telling them about their hypocrisy, their failures with regard to following God, and yet they scoff at him. They don't repent, they scoff. So Jesus gives a warning after their scoffing. Jesus says to them, verse 15, You are those who justify yourselves in the sight of men, but God knows your hearts. For that which is highly esteemed among men is detestable in the sight of God. Jesus here, I think, has a strong reaction. He says, you are those, kind of like Nathan with David, you are the man. It's kind of like that. You, Pharisees, you can almost picture him pointing his finger. You are those who justify yourselves in the sight of men. And Jesus doesn't take offense for his own sake. He doesn't try to scoff back at them or insult them. He speaks the truth to them. He could say, I'm the Messiah. How dare you scoff at me? He could have called down legions of angels to, to launch fireballs at these Pharisees for rejecting him, for scoffing at him. But he doesn't take this personally. He doesn't, but he takes this as an opportunity to, again, to warn them of what's in their hearts. And he lets them know that their wicked hearts are on full display before God. Now, Jesus calls the Pharisees hypocrites many times. These men, we know, wanted men's approval rather than God's. They patted themselves in the back, and they got pats in the back from the world. That's what they really wanted, and that's what they got. Let's turn to Matthew 23. Jesus' scathing rebukes of the scribes and Pharisees. Matthew 23, and we won't read the whole thing, but just one example of of how Jesus describes the Pharisees and the the scribes. Matthew 23, verse 5 says, They do all their deeds to be noticed by men, for they broaden their phylacteries. Those are little uh, boxes they put scriptures in. They wear them on their, their forehead or in their arm. They broaden their phylacteries. They're really um, obvious with their piety. And they lengthen the tassels of their garments. God said you have to have tassels on your, your cloak. Remember from the Old Testament law? Well, if we have to have tassels, they're going to have the longest, biggest, uh, gaudiest tassels they can have so everybody sees how religious they are. They love the place of honor at banquets and the chief seats in the synagogues and respectful greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by men. So verse 5 says, they do all their deeds. All they did was to be noticed by men. That's what they wanted and that's what they got. But God knows your hearts. Back to what Jesus is saying in 
Luke 16, God knows your hearts. You might recall 1 Samuel 16, 7, pretty famous passage. And you might not quite remember the context, but remember Samuel is told to go anoint one of the sons of Jesse. And he meets the first one, and he's this tall, handsome fella, and he looks very kingly. And Samuel says, this must be the Lord's anointed. But the Lord says to Samuel, 1 Samuel 16, verse 7, Do not look at his appearance or at the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For God sees not as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. So while these Pharisees were noticed by men and praised by men, celebrated in their time, God saw their heart and saw what they truly were. And we see what they are later in Matthew 23. Verse 25, Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside they are full of robbery and self-indulgence. There's that word robbery again. They lusted for things and wanted to take them. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and of the dish, so that the outside of it may become clean also. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. So you too outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Then that word righteous is the same root from which we get justify. You are those who justify yourselves from Luke 16. You look righteous in the sight of men, but God knows your hearts. He knows inside you are like a tomb with rotting flesh, decaying corpses and dead men's bones. And as repulsive as that is to us, it was even more repulsive to the Jews of Jesus' day because that was a a way to become ceremonially unclean, to be touching a tomb with dead men's bones in it. So Jesus is not shy about calling them on their hypocrisy. In fact, he says, For that which is highly esteemed among men is detestable in the sight of God. This word detestable is an abomination. It's something loathsome, like we just saw here, dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Think of the the grossest thing you can imagine, and that's what this hypocrisy is like before God. These men had the approval of men for their external piety. Look how holy that man is. He's he's dressed uh, so so beautifully and yet so humbly. He, He has the word of God on his forehead and on his arm and all the things that they do, they're, they're praying aloud at this on the street corner. And look at, look at these men putting the, these uh, volumes of gold into the treasury. But they did it just to be seen by men, not to be doing it for God's sake. And so while the people approved them, God saw their hearts. He saw those detestable things, the dead men's bones in their souls. And so these men were justified in the sight of men. That is, men declared them righteous. Look at how wonderful they are, how good they are. But were they justified before God? Look at Luke 18. You know this story well. Luke 18, verse 10. Jesus gives this parable. In fact, we could look at verse 9 to give an introduction. Jesus told a parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. There's an idea of justified, righteous again, and viewed others with contempt. They're self-righteous, but others are 
are the ones who are the detestable things. Two men went up into the temple to pray, verse 10, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. So we have these sort of polar opposites. The Pharisee, the, the outwardly holy one, the tax collector, the outwardly unrighteous one. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you, this man, the tax collector, went to his house justified, there's that word again, rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. Was this Pharisee justified? Was he righteous? Depends your perspective, right? If you ask him, what's he going to say? Yes. If you ask the people who are around him, what are they going to say? Yes. Whose opinion, not opinion, whose facts matter? God's, right? If you're not justified before God, all the praise of the world means nothing, does it? And so you can get times man of the year, every year of the rest of your life. You could be celebrated in all media. You can be praised to the hilt, win all the awards. And if God doesn't justify you, if God doesn't declare you righteous, all those accolades are for nothing. But if God justifies you, what does it matter what other people say? They could despise you, hate you. But if you are standing before God's throne and he says, you are righteous in my sight because of the blood of Jesus Christ, that's all that matters. Now, before we continue in Luke chapter 16, I want to give a lesson on interpreting Scripture correctly. This is some bonus material, no extra charge. But as I was studying this passage, I was looking at the last part of verse 15. It says, For that which is highly esteemed among men is detestable in the sight of God. And I I just focused on that alone. And I spent some time thinking and writing about how it is that the world loves to invert God's law. They want to take things that are detestable in God's sight and esteem them. So they take uh, evil and call it good. They take good and call it evil. They want to celebrate things that are repulsive to God. And that's all true, and I added a number of verses to my notes to back it up and even had some application questions ready to go for at the end. As, as I'm studying, and I'm, I'm thinking of lessons as I write my, my notes. So I'll, I'll have the, the notes with the sort of inline commentary, and at the end I usually have applications. You, if you've been here long enough, you know that. And so as I think of applications in one part, I'll put them at the end of my notes. And so I was doing that as I was thinking about the fact that the way men view righteousness is inverted from how God views righteousness. But as I reflected on this passage where I was, Luke 16, verse 15, I decided this was not really Jesus' point here. Jesus, as you look at the the context here, he's talking about God knowing their hearts, and he's condemning the hypocrisy of these Pharisees. And the thing that was highly esteemed among men at the end of verse 15 was their outward piety, but they were detestable in God's sight because God knew the truth of their hearts. So I pulled out maybe 30 minutes of work and some thoughts from the scriptures that would have been biblical, relevant, and I think challenging to all of us, including myself. And I don't say this to make you feel sorry for me, but to remind ourselves that when we're studying God's word, you can make the right point with the wrong verse. 
And so be careful about that. It can happen to any of us. Um, I'm sure Tom and, and Brett could have times like that as well. And I, I could wax eloquent, maybe another sermon, or we'll get to verses in the Gospels to talk about the things I thought I wanted to talk about. But let's focus on what Jesus is really saying and not make a point I want to make just because I want to make it. Let's focus on what Jesus says. So let that, let that be a lesson to all of us, to be careful in how you understand God's word. Don't read into a passage what is not there. What's that called? You know the, the term? Eisegesis. Exegesis is drawing out from the passage what's there. Eisegesis is taking what I want and putting it there. And eisegesis isn't always I'm putting man's wicked thoughts on God's word. It could be I'm putting God's thoughts in the wrong place in God's word. So just be aware of that and be careful of it in your own studies. Well, let's move on to verse 16. Jesus is now condemning the Pharisees for their hypocrisy. They're justified, they're righteous on the outside, but on the inside they're full of these dead men's bones. God sees that and he he hates it. Verse 16 says, The law and the prophets were proclaimed until John, that's John the Baptist, of course. Since that time, the gospel of the kingdom of God has been preached and everyone is forcing his way into it. And this sounds a lot like Matthew 11. I'm not sure when we did this. It's been some time ago, but it says this in verses 12 and 13. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence and violent men take it by force. For the, all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. Now it sounds kind of strange that the kingdom of heaven suffering violence and violent men taking it by force. It sounds like you have some, some terrorists coming in trying to storm the kingdom of God. But we'll, we'll try and explain what I think this means. Jesus mentions here the law and the prophets. And that's a common way of splitting the Jewish scriptures. It's a twofold uh, explanation of what the Jewish scriptures are. So we have the law of Moses, the first five books, and then the prophets, the rest of the Old Testament. Jesus, or Luke rather, uses this term in Luke 24. After the resurrection, Jesus is, remember, uh, walking with the disciples on the road to Emmaus. And it says in verse 27, beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, there's the law and the prophets, Jesus explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. So you think of all the Old Testament scriptures are encompassed in that term law and prophets. Now there are other times you can refer to a threefold split. And this is in Luke 24, a little later. Verse 44, Jesus said, these are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. So depending on how you want to split it up, you can just talk about the law. You can use the term law for the Old Testament, or you can talk about the law and the prophets, or Moses and the prophets. Or if you want to be a little more elaborate, you say Moses, prophets, and Psalms. In any case, it's, he's referring to the Jewish scriptures. All the things that were given before to the prophets, to Moses. That's what he's talking about. The Old Testament of Jesus' time, Luke sixteen sixteen, the law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. So you Pharisees and all the Jews, of course, had the word of God delivered to you in the past. But he wasn't done talking to you. John the Baptist came and he was preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God. And then God's son came speaking, preaching as well. So God speaks to you in the, the far past, in the near past. God has sent John, who's preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God. Matthew 3, 1 and 2 says this about John's ministry. In those days, of course, this is before Jesus' public ministry, 
uh, he was preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, or the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is just on the cusp of being here in the person of Jesus Christ, God's Son. And then Luke 3.18 says, With many other exhortations, John preached the gospel to the people. So John clearly preaches the gospel of the kingdom of God as Jesus is on his way, and even as John is is fading out and Jesus is, is coming into more prominent focus, John is preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God. John was the bridge between the Old Testament prophets and the Messiah. So Jesus here is saying, God has been so gracious to you. He's given you his word in the past, and now he's giving you the gospel of the kingdom of God. In fact, it says here, the gospel of the kingdom of God has been preached. Literally, that is, the kingdom of God is being gospeled. They take the, the word, we, we don't, it doesn't sound right in English, does it? Uh, but to gospelize, you might say. You take this noun form of gospel, uh, euangelion, you might know that one, evangel, evangelism. And you take that and make it a verb, evangelizing, you might say. The kingdom of God is being evangelized, but we don't think of, we think of evangelism as happening to somebody. We, we evangelize a person, but really this is a preaching of the gospel he's talking about here. The, the kingdom of God is being gospeled to you right now. And as a result of this proclamation, this gracious gift of God, everyone, it says, is forcing his way into it. Now, it's not necessarily everyone in the world, or everyone even of the Jews, but in a large group. It's a difficult phrase to understand, and there's disagreement as to how to understand this term. Some of you might have a translation that says, everyone is urged to enter it. So that is, this forcing is, are, who's forcing? Are you being pushed, or, or are you yourself pushing that's an idea of a, a middle voice or a passive voice. Passive meaning you're being pushed. And so some translations will say, you're being urged to enter it. So when John preaches the gospel, when Jesus preaches the gospel, when the disciples preach the gospel, they're urging you to enter into the kingdom of God. And that is true. But I think what he's saying here is it's a not a, a passive, but more of an active. So there's an energy about those who hear the gospel and respond. When you preach the gospel and somebody believes in Christ, they're not sitting there in the recliner saying, oh yeah, I'll raise my hand, thank you Jesus, and then live, on, live their lives. Jesus, as he preaches the gospel, is exhorting people to have an energy towards following Christ. Listen to Luke thirteen twenty four. Jesus says, strive to enter through the narrow door. It's not wait to be carried through, but strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able or Luke fourteen twenty seven, whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. So Jesus doesn't call for passive disciples. There's no such thing. There's an activity. There's an energy about those who hear the gospel and believe. You strive to enter the gate. You take your cross and come after him to be his disciple. And so we have even the tax collectors and sinners are listening to Christ. Those who seem to be far away from the law, those ones who may disregard the law, who are this close to being Gentiles, they have disregarded and disobeyed the law till now, but now they are sitting at Jesus' feet and listening to him. They're pressing their way. They're forcing their way, you could say, into the kingdom of God. 
And then the question is, why is Jesus bringing this up here? Why does Jesus talk about forcing your way into the kingdom? And I think it may be because he's seeing the Pharisees who are just sitting back and scoffing. They're content to just watch Jesus passively, in a sense, and, and scoff at him instead of actively following him. While the sinners are flocking to Jesus, the Pharisees sit there and watch and scoff and complain. And so Jesus doesn't explicitly say so here in this passage, but there's a contrast between those who energetically respond to the gospel and the, the Pharisees, on the other hand, who set aside the Old Testament and reject the gospel of the kingdom. So we have here in verse 16, Jesus mentions the law and the prophets, and then the gospel of the kingdom of God being preached. Which of those did the Pharisees follow? Neither one, really, right? They rejected the law. They rejected the word of, of Christ and of John. You might remember Mark 7, 9, Jesus said to the Pharisees, you are experts at setting aside the commandment of God in order to keep your tradition. So they knew the law. They had the law. They studied the law. But they set aside the law when it suited them. And it's interesting, by the way, that Jesus gives an example in Mark and other other Gospels. When he gives the example of setting aside God's law, remember what that that story was? They would set aside the law of God for their own tradition. That tradition was, if you have money that you could use to help your father or mother, you say, I'm sorry, this is Corbin. This is a gift to God. And so they have an explicit command to honor their father and mother in the Ten Commandments. They set aside that greater law in order to say, well, I'm this... This money's earmarked for for God, for the temple. And so they set aside God's law to keep their tradition. And again, I was going to say, it's interesting that the example that Jesus gives has to do with money or wealth. They love money. And so they wouldn't. you couldn't pry a shekel out of their fingers to give to their mom or dad. They wanted to store it up for themselves. Sorry, mom and dad, this pile of money is devoted to God. doesn't mean they're actually ready to put it in the temple ready to put it in, in the, the coffers, but they're, they're holding on to it for God's sake. I'm, I'm a steward of God's money here. And these Pharisees, despite having all the options of listening to Christ day after day, they've heard the word of God. They've heard the law and the prophets. They've heard, many of them, the preaching of John. They've heard the preaching of Jesus Christ. They've heard the, the teaching of Christ in, a, in public settings and in private settings. And yet they rejected God's law. They rejected the gospel of the kingdom of God. And they would ultimately re- reject God's son himself. So I think that's why Jesus t- mentions this here. This is a way of pointing to them that they are ones who have great advantages. They have great light from God, and yet they continue to reject it. Let's move on to verse 17. Jesus says, It is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one stroke of a letter of the law to fail. And this also harkens back to something from Matthew. This verse 17 here sounds like Matthew 5.18. Jesus says, Truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. And he's saying here, Don't think that from verse 16, I talk about the gospel of the kingdom of God. That doesn't cancel out the law and the prophets. 
And Jesus, in fact, said in the previous verse in Matthew, Matthew 5.17, Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. And Jesus here mentions, It's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one stroke of the letter of the law to fail. And we know that heaven and earth will indeed pass away. Second Peter 3.10 says, The day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. And Jesus, speaking of a second coming in Matthew 24.35, says, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Notice along the way that Jesus says in Luke sixteen seventeen, he, he's speaking of the law being forever. In Matthew 24, he talks about my words not passing away. So Jesus puts his words on a par with Scripture in a, in a way that no mere prophet would dare do. Now, some of you have had some science classes, and I, I think of the effort it would take to destroy the heavens and the earth. If you wanted to tear down this building, how much energy would it take? A lot. If you want to destroy a city, we have bombs that can do that nowadays. But think about the energy it would take to destroy the heavens and the earth. All the nuclear bombs you can imagine couldn't even put a dent in it. Uh, And yet, that would be easier. Whatever it would take to do all that, that would be easier than for one small stroke of a letter of the law to fail. Now, if you've ever seen Hebrew letters, you'll notice that some of them look very similar to one another. And you distinguish them by just a small mark. Kind of like in English, you could change a capital P to an R with one stroke, or maybe have an O and turn it into a Q. Just a little stroke of the pen would make a difference between a a letter and another letter. And even the letters of God's word themselves, down to the very stroke, are important. They will not fail. I read this last Sunday in the service, Isaiah 40, verse 8, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. God made the heavens and the earth to go away, didn't he? They're to be used, and then God will destroy them in his good time. But God never destroys his word. It is forever. And again, Jesus doesn't here make the specific application to the Pharisees, but you can see the contrast between Jesus, who had the highest regard for God's law, and the Pharisees, who proclaimed their devotion to God's law. They outwardly kept so much of it, but they changed it or ignored it or added to it as it suited them. So for them, the law was, some, law was something to, to wear on their, their sleeves to, to make themselves look pious, but to be molded and shaped according to their own image. Well, one last verse here, verse 18. <clears throat> Jesus says, Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and he who marries one who is divorced from a husband commits adultery. And again, Jesus is quoting himself from Matthew chapter 5, verse 32, But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except for the reason of unchastity, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. And this whole discussion, brief discussion of divorce, seems out of the blue, but I think he puts it here as an example of the kind of law the Pharisees disregarded, but Jesus upheld. There was a law in Deuteronomy 24 that regulates divorce, 
And verse 1 says this, When a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes, because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out from the house, and then it goes on to talk about what, what she may or may not do. And so the key there is that word indecency. If a man finds indecency in her, what does that mean? Some rabbis said this, some said that. If we look at Matthew 19, Jesus gives a long discussion about this as a result of a, a question from some Pharisees. Uh, but verse 3 says, uh, Matthew 19, some Pharisees began, came to Jesus, testing him and asking, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? So some of these more liberal Pharisees would be able to divorce their wives for any reason at all if their wives ruined their food or maybe found somebody prettier, somebody richer. For them, divorce was just a matter of the paperwork and the procedure. As long as you wrote up the certificate of divorce and you gave it to her, then that was it. You're, you're free and clear and you can marry whoever you want to. Find, find somebody who's better looking or who doesn't burn your food or, or makes or has more money in her bank account. Whatever it might be, you could legitimately, in their eyes, divorce her. You're free and clear. Now you can marry another woman. And then this view of divorce, though, leads to a multiplication of adultery. The man may have another woman in mind as he divorces his wife, and then when he gets married, that becomes an adulterous relationship. And then the woman who is not legitimately divorced is still, in God's eyes, joined to her husband, so any subsequent marriage also involves adultery. So you have adultery after adultery after adultery. And it, it sort of, as you, as you see, men and women become divorced and divorced and divorced. You, you see the multiplication of that adultery. And this ex-wife, who's just been divorced, is in a position where she needs to remarry, and that becomes adulterous also. And we won't get into the discussion of divorce so much right now, but just a few things to mention Luke's account, Luke 16, doesn't give the exception for unchastity, but Matthew's does. And the exception here in Matthew, Jesus says, anyone who divorces his wife except for the reason of unchastity makes her commit adultery. And this term unchastity is used of sexual immorality in a a broad sense. And there's disagreement as to what this means. Some think it means actual adultery only, or some sin that's short of adultery, or some think it might refer to marrying a two-year relative. You married your cousin or something like that. Or discovering on the wedding night that a woman had been impure before she was married. In any case, there is an exception here that Jesus mentions in Matthew 5. I take it, this word unchastity, in a broader sense to mean any kind of serious sexual sin. The kind that would, in Old Testament law, result in the death penalty. And so God graciously is allowing divorce instead of the death penalty. So you could argue in a case of divorce due to unfaithfulness, the innocent spouse is freed as if the guilty spouse were dead. There is one other exception Paul mentions in 1 Corinthians 7, and this is more relevant to the church age. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 12, says, But to the rest I say, not the Lord, that is, Paul gives this instruction. Jesus did not give this instruction on the earth. If any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he must not divorce her. And a woman who has an unbelieving husband and he consents to live with her, she must not send her husband away. 
So you have a situation where you have a husband who's a, a Christian and a wife who's not, or vice versa. As long as they can live together, they should not get divorced. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband. For otherwise, your children are unclean, but now they are holy. So there's a sanctification of a kind that happens when you have an unbelieving husband with a believing wife or vice versa. You still have God present in that house in a special way, and you might be able to win your spouse through your godly example. Yet, verse 15 says, if the unbelieving one leaves, let him leave. The brother or the sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. So, if there's a situation where there's an unbelieving spouse who does not want to live with their believing spouse, and they, they... they are determined to leave. Paul here says, let them leave. In that case, would, would be another grounds for divorce. And in that case, the the party who is left, the might call the innocent party, the, the believing party in this case, would be uh, allowed to marry again, but only in the Lord. As Paul says elsewhere, only another Christian in that case. Well, let's... Let's end this passage right now. It just sort of stops. I, I hate to do this because I really, as I said before, want to get into the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. We don't have time today. But let's just have a couple of, of points of application from this passage. And it, I think it's a simple one. Are you like a Pharisee? Are you a hypocrite? Do you have an outward appearance of godliness and yet inside your soul is like a, like a tomb? full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. We just read part of Matthew 6, verses 1 to 6. Jesus says, Beware of practicing a righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. So when you give to the poor, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, so that they may be honored by men. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. But when you give to the poor, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving will be in secret, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. When you pray, you are not to be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners, so that they may be seen by men. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. That is, they have what they want. They wanted men's approval, they get it because their piety, their false piety is so visible to the world. But you, verse 6, when you pray, go into your inner room, close your door, and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will will reward you. So I can't see your hearts. I, I can see you're all dressed nicely. You, you're all behaving well, I think, for the most part. I don't see you 24-7. I don't know what's in your heart even now. If your heart is worshiping God or your heart is angry with God, if your heart is rejecting God, you may be sinning in your thoughts even as I speak. I can't see that, but God sees it. Your heart is open to him. And so if that's the case, you need to get right with God. You need to repent now. Listen while you have a chance to the words of Christ. Follow God's law. Repent of your sin and trust Christ, who's the only one who can justify you. I said before, whether you justify yourself, whether you're self-righteous, whether you're righteous in the sight of everybody else in the world, if God doesn't judge you righteous at his throne, nothing else matters. It's only God's 
righteous judgment that makes any difference eternally for you. And if you want to know that you are going to be accepted into God's presence, you need to be justified on the basis of what Christ has done for you. Repent, believe in Christ's work. You can't justify yourself. You can't be good enough to do anything to get into heaven, but only on the merits of Jesus Christ. Let's close in prayer. Father, we love hearing the words of Christ, even in a somewhat puzzling passage. We thank you for his words, even to these hard-hearted Pharisees, because it's a warning to us, even as he graciously warned them, even in strong terms. Some of us may need those strong terms as well. And we pray for any here who might be hypocrites. They might be whitewashed tombs. They might have great sin inside them, unrepentant uh, desires. And they might appear to be following Christ on the outside, appear to be listening even, but inside they're scoffing, they're sneering at him. We pray that you would give repentance to any here today who are like that. May they be washed from the inside out, even as Jesus said to the Pharisees to wash the inside of the bowl so the outside might be clean as well. May we all, may we all be washed clean by the blood of the Lamb, and press into the kingdom to serve him with energy, with with diligence, with faithfulness all the days of our lives. We pray this in his name. Amen.